church. That's how we uh, tend to, to, to do the ministry here. We, we tend to take a, a book of God's word and go through it uh, consecutively. Uh, we, we, we try not to, well, we don't do it verse by verse, because if you did it verse by verse, once you've finished your PhD, you might have got a chapter. If you do a master's and a PhD, you might have got a little book. Uh, what we want to do is give you, over your time in Cyprus, a, a good basis in God's Word. And so we're possibly going through this slightly quicker than I would like to in some ways. Uh, where it gets particularly interesting and deep, we'll, we'll put the brakes on and go deeper. But mostly we'll be going through this sort of fairly large chunk uh, by large chunk. And, and last Sunday uh, we saw the setting of 1 Corinthians and we look back to how the church was established in Acts 18 and then we looked at the uh, the first part, the first part of this which was to verse uh, 9 and, and we were seeing there last week that uh, it's often we think of the Corinthians as a bad church if, if you've read the book of Corinthians if you've heard sermons on Corinthians before you'll, you'll know the negative and, and there is negative and it needs dealing with but as we saw here, before Paul took the negative on, before Paul put, brought to these people attention that their failings and their sin and their need for change, he thanks God for who they are through God's grace. And so we see in this church there are some real positive attributes. And these attributes are built on God's grace. And so as Paul opens up this letter and develops it and comes to some of the challenges. He's doing it on the background that these people are truly Christians. He's not questioning their salvation. He's just saying you're walking the wrong way. There's some bad things here that need sorting out. God's grace in Christ is there. And it's because of God's grace, there is hope for them as they go forward. And as we are challenged similarly, as we go through this, there is hope for us. There's an encouragement here for us to change, to become more Christ-like, to be the church here in Lefkosha that we uh, should be. Now, as many of you will know, all of you will know, the clock's changed. And as the clock's changed... I was going to change from my summer uniform to my winter uniform and put a suit on. Manuel beat me to it. But as, as I was doing this, I realized that my first question I was going to ask is, who is your favorite celebrity pastor? And I thought if I came all dressed in my best suit, you might be thinking that I was trying to get that permission, and, uh, position and, uh, and, and, and sway you by the, the clothing and, and the style that I was having for that Sunday. Uh, why do I have a different style in the winter and the summer? Just purely for my own comfort and the fact that I don't faint. If I was wearing a suit and tie through the summer, I don't think we would have sermons quite so long. Or perhaps that's a good thing you say. I don't know. But who is, or do you have, a favourite celebrity pastor? Is, is, is there... Sermons and services and, 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 and ministries that you are listening to outside of church life. Who is teaching and preaching and influencing you? Do you idolize a preacher and why? I wouldn't go as far as to say that Pastor Andrew idolizes a preacher, 
But all of the, the books there of dead men are preachers that Pastor Andrew holds in very, very high esteem. And so do I. Many others do as well. But do you idolize a preacher? Are there some preachers that you put on a little bit of a, a pedestal and think they are a bit, a bit special? Is this a good thing? Why am I talking about celebrity pastors? Well, as we go through this passage, I think it will become very, very apparent to you. You see, there's a problem that Paul starts to address here in the very beginning. And Paul has got an amazing mind. He's, he's obviously got a real pastor's heart that we can see. He's pastorally concerned for the people at Corinth. But also, he's an intellectual heavyweight. He would have easily had a PhD of any of the universities here in Cyprus. And I think in honesty, he probably would have been Ivy League or Russell Group in the UK or, or, or from any of the top universities in the world because he had a, an amazing mind. God blessed him with that. God gave him that. And as he puts this letter together and as the Holy Spirit speaks to him, he realizes that we need to address the problems in order. And, and the big problem, the big thing that he wants to address and the big thing he calls them to is he starts calling them to unity. He starts calling them to unity. And my first heading is just three exhortations, one problem. Three exhortations, one problem. As we start this section in verse 10, Paul just says, I appeal to you. I appeal to you. Now this word is used 37 times in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So if you read all of Corinthians 1 and Corinthians 2, this, I appeal to you, is used uh, 37 times. And it's a heavyweight word. It's also translated beseech. I beseech you. I appeal to you. Now, I want to sort of help you understand what's going on here. This is more than someone just casually asking, yeah? Imagine that you are going to the international office and you're trying to get your school fees reduced. Yes? You don't casually suggest reduction, do you? You implore, you beseech that poor person, yes? Or perhaps you've got to the end of your exam season and your GPA just needs to be a little bit higher. And you go to your tutor and you just sort of casually sort of suggest, well, it might be nice if you just increase it a little bit. No, you, you beseech them. You, you, you appeal to them. You implore them. You entreat them. And this is what Paul is doing. It's not casual. It's not light. He is imploring them. He is saying, listen, this is important. You need to listen. I appeal to you. And then he says, brothers. So it's not remote. He's not talking to people outside the church. He's talking to these believers in Corinth. And he recognizes them as brothers and sisters in Christ. This problem isn't outside of the church. This problem is inside the church. And so this is really relevant to us. You see, so often when we hear God's word, we think, ah, that's for them there. That's for that person there. This passage of God's word, this all God's word, is for us here. And it's particularly because we are brothers and sisters with Paul. And now there was a particular problem that he was addressing for Corinth. But we need to think, 
is that problem, is that challenge in any way, shape or form our own? Paul is, is not messing about. And he makes this imperative instruction, this imploration, and he does it in the name of the head of the church. This is heavyweight. He's saying, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't his own personal notion. This isn't Paul thinking, this is what I think the problem is. This is an issue. And it's an issue that goes right down to the, the root of the church, the foundation of the church, to the head of the church. And so the Corinthians need to take this seriously. And as we listen to this, as we have this passage opened up before us, as we hear the Holy Spirit talking to us, we need to take this seriously too, because this is a matter that Paul brings to the church at Corinth and us in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he appeals to them. He calls them brothers. He sets this up. And then he brings this three-part exhortation to them. There's three key words here that help us understand what he is saying. He starts with a positive, and he wants them to agree. He said that all of you agree. And then he goes on to say that there are no divisions. So the first part of the exhortation is a positive. He wants them to agree. And then there's a negative, if you like, that there's to be no divisions, although the negative of no divisions is a very much a positive thing. And, and so this tells us, and we have to remember, be reminded of this, that this division was happening between themselves. To have no divisions among themselves, among you. This is a problem in the church. This is a problem with brothers and sisters in the church. This is a problem between people who were sat next to each other Sunday by Sunday. This is a problem that happened to people who got together in the same growth groups, if they called them that. And he's saying to them, I want you to agree. There's to be no division. And then thirdly, he says, he tells them to be united. Now this being united is far deeper than just shaking someone's hand or fist bumping them or saying hi at the beginning of a service and bye at the end of it. This being united, it tells them to be in the same mind and the same judgment. So Paul is bringing to these people three exhortations. To agree, no division, to be united. And that's because there is one serious problem here. And that's the problem of disunity. They were not united. And Paul is taking this issue first because the unity of the church is paramount to the health and growth of the church. The unity of the church is paramount. It is essential to the health and the growth of the church. Now, I think I just want to caveat that. Some churches are growing numerically. 
But it's not just a numerical growth that's important. It is a healthy growth. And what Paul is wanting to see is believers built up and people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. A healthy growth. And I think the fact that there's not a lot of healthy growth happening nowadays is because there is issue with unity amongst churches. The unity of the church is paramount to its health and growth. And this principle is not just a principle for Corinth, it's a principle for us here too at LPC. If we want to be a church that is healthy and growing, we must be a church that is united. Jesus taught his disciples very early on in his ministry in Mark 3 and 25. He says to them, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against its health, that house will not be able to stand. And he wasn't speaking directly about the church, but he's bringing a principle. He's bringing a principle that is very important. Divisions cause things to break down. And Paul in the name of Jesus, doesn't want the church at Corinth breaking down. A breaking down church dishonors God, it robs him of his glory, and Jesus doesn't want that of his church. Jesus said in John 13, in verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love for one another is unity. You see, divisions within a church, disunity within a church, will mean that the church loses its gospel witness. A church won't be able to be a witness and a bright light if it's lost its love for one another, if it's lost its its unity. People will know that you are my disciples. People will know that there is something special if you have love for one another, if you have unity. And and the early church in Acts, the early church in Acts, we see it in Acts chapter 4, and the first part of verse 32, models unity and growth. And now the full number of those who believed, the full number of those who believed, that's a long way of saying, and everybody who believed were of one heart and soul. They were one heart and soul. That is unity. A church will grow and flourish when they are one heart and soul. And as we carry on reading in Acts, we see this church that's healthy and growing in action. And it's because of unity, one heart and soul. I want to take this moment to really encourage you to come along to the growth groups. They're, they're a time of blessing. They're a time when we get stuck into God's Word. Thursday evenings here, too, are a time when we get together and get stuck into God's Word. It helps with our unity. It helps with our love for one another. It helps us to grow. And the reason I mention our growth groups is we've just started a, a series about reaching out and talking and sharing the Gospel. And we're looking at a passage in Ephesians. And, and I just want to bring this to our attention again. Because it talks here about attaining the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Sorry, that's Ephesians 4.13. 
And so he's talking about we will attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. Unity is needed for maturity and spiritual growth. And that passage goes on to develop that a bit further. And so Paul here, at the beginning of his letter to these Corinthians, after he's pointed them to God's grace and the fact that they are one in Christ, and the fact there is a testimony among them, and the fact that they have spiritual gifts, and the fact that there are lots of things that are going well, he's saying, look, there's a problem. And the problem is seen in the exhortation. And the exhortation is they need to agree there needs to be no divisions among them and they need to be united because there is this problem of division. There's a problem of division. And Paul is making this exhortation for a reason. You see, Paul knows that there is a problem. Chloe's people told Paul that there is quarrelling among you. Now, we, we don't really know who Chloe or her people were. Some people have made different guesses. If it was really important, we'd be told. We don't know. But what I find fascinating is this. Is the mighty Apostle Paul in the apostolic age is told by somebody what the problem is within the church. You see, we might think that the Apostle Paul would have been sat there in his study and, and some divine supernatural thing would have come upon him and there would have been a revelation saying, that's what's wrong with the church. I'm not saying that God doesn't use those things at times. But what we see here is God uses a concerned member or guest of this church to identify and see a problem and report it to the Apostle. They brought it, and they, and they, they brought it home. And so we can learn from this that speaking to your pastor about a problem within the church family can be very healthy for the church. Now, if, if you are not able to speak directly to the, into the problem yourself, if you're not able to speak directly to that person or people about the sin, which is the right first step, then within church life, it's not right to keep it to yourself. Now, I want to underline this point here, because I know that you Africans especially are very good at keeping secrets. I know that. And I know that you're very good about keeping secrets of things that you see about that are wrong. And on one hand, that is very, very righteous. Gossiping is wrong, and we're not asking you to gossip. But what I am saying is the pastors of this church will not be able to see or know everything. And if the problem of sin within the church is not dealt with, the unity and the testimony and the health of this church are at stake. And so, brothers and sisters, you have a responsibility. 
You have a responsibility to the unity of the church. And, and just like this person here, who, who, who Chloe and her people have brought this message to Paul, they're not berated. She's not called a gossip. She's not called a snitch. She's not tagged up there as some wicked, evil witch who's told tales. Chloe's name is there because she did something that's of great value and service to the church of God. And you know, I have been personally grieved within our church life here at LPC when some problem or other has come to a head. And it's only when it's come to a, a nasty head is when the eldership have come to know about it. And then to find out tragically that this was an open secret that other people knew about, but nothing was said. You see, so often a big problem can be avoided if it's dealt with when it's small. And so often you are rubbing shoulders with each other and you may see something that's just going off when it's tiny. And the right word and the right exhortation and the right encouragement at that time could stop something hideous and horrendous happening. And I wonder how much better and how much greater our witness could be if with the Lord's help we try to nip these things before they became big problems. It's no secret about my love for gardening. Not. <laughs> but I'm learning, and I've learned vividly over this summertime. We, we left for the UK, we were away for six weeks, we came back, and a little bit of ground outside our house had these huge, great, big, about this high, branches of trees growing. It's incredible. Just in six weeks, these, these things just shot up. And uh, Rachel commissioned me with the task of pulling these things up. And they had great long roots on them. And they were really difficult to pull up. The other Saturday, or the, in the week I think it was, we went out there and we saw some little ones. Same thing, same leaf. Very easy to pull out. No problem. Yeah? Same within church life. You leave something to grow, it becomes a massive problem. We, we need to, to work these things. And, and so, practically, if you speak to a, to a pastor, an elder here at LPC, about a concern you have, you may in the first instance be encouraged to deal with that situation yourselves, is, is that, if that may be the biblical way forward. But if the elders are involved, with the Lord's help, it will be handled quietly, sensitively, and biblically. You won't make a big noise if it's not necessary. If there's public sin that needs addressing, we'll have to address it publicly. But lots of stuff can be resolved quietly. But on this occasion, it couldn't be done. On this occasion, it's a bit different. On this occasion, the Apostle Paul was not with them in person. And he's writing this open letter, and he's writing this explicit letter, and he, and he names the per person who brought the news because he wants everyone there to know that the, he knows for real. He's not making this up. It is real. It's a real problem. It's been noticed. Chloe and her people have told him. And he makes it personal. He says, there is quarreling among you. And he increases the intensity by saying, my brothers. He's not picking a fight. He's exhorting them from brotherly concern. He says, 
There is quarreling among you, my brothers. They're his brothers in Christ. They're his sisters in Christ. They are family and they are fighting. And then he opens up the nature of this quarreling. And, and, and they're split into at least four factions. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. Now immediately we have a little problem with this list, don't we? Because we understand what following Paul is wrong and following Apollos is right and following Cephas is right, but following Christ? Surely that must be right. You see, even though something good like following Christ, even something good like that can be a problem if it's working out and the following of Christ means that there is quarrelling that lead to disunity. Those people may be saying, I follow Christ, but in action and fact, because there was quarrelling, because there was upset, because they were arguing, they weren't really following Christ. Because if they were following Christ, they wouldn't have been arguing or quarrelling, would they? There was a problem, there was a disconnect. It's quite likely these followers of Jesus thought they were so spiritually superior than the others, like the Pharisees. Oh, look, they just follow men, Paul, Apollos. We follow Christ. How much better are we than they? Pride comes in. Jealousy comes in. These brothers were not aligning to uh, the brothers in unity but they're aligning to their own celebrity pastor, if you like, or their own personal preferences. And for whatever reason, these people were seeing their chosen pastor, their chosen teacher, their chosen uh, doctrine and theology to be greater than the unity of the church. They were all brothers. They were all united in salvation. And giving Paul's response, it would seem for some of them, it's as simple as who baptized them. Oh, Apollos baptized me, that means I'm a follower of Apollos. Uh, Cephas baptized me, I'm a follower of Cephas. No one could say that about Christ. And only a very, very few of them could say it about Paul. But these, this church family has been broken apart. And this church family has been broken apart because they were drifting away from the centre and one was saying and others were saying I'm following this I'm following that and so Paul brings what I've called three killer questions and one answer so that's our next heading as we move through this passage three killer questions and one answer Paul starts with with a series of questions or some rhetoric to get them thinking as I said, he, he's got great intellect and the Holy Spirit is enabling him here. And I'm sure if you asked him, what made you think of that? The Apostle Paul would give him credit to the Holy Spirit. But his first question is on point. His first question just simply is, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? And there's only one answer to this question. You, you have, you, no. God cannot be divided. Christ is not divided, and so his church should not be divided. The devil loves to try to split churches. He's doing it all the time. Whether it's for doctrine, or whether it's for 
how the, the, the worship's conducted, whether how the offering's done, or the colour of the seats, or whatever. The, the devil doesn't care. He, he loves to try to split churches and cause arguments between church family because he knows that Christ is not divided and he loves nothing better than liking his Christ church to be divided. It's like, it's like something he likes to do because it's nasty and it grieves Christ. It grieves God. This is his church, his people. And church splits and, and disunity should leave us grieved because they grieve the Lord who cannot and is not divided. I'm going to use a boxing illustration. Forgive me if you don't like boxing, but this is just as well. Get it? This is almost as if Paul has gone around and put a smacking right arm into the person's stomach. Yes? And the reeling. This makes you real, doesn't it? Is Christ divided? And he comes with an upper hook with his next question. And he says, was Paul crucified for you? Was Paul crucified for you? They've been hit with, is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? What is the answer? No, Paul was not crucified for you. Paul was pointing these people back to their salvation. He was humble enough to use himself as an example. He didn't put in the others there. He just brings himself there. He says, was Paul crucified for you? We are not saved by a pastor. We are only saved through God's grace. We're only saved by God loving us so much that he sent his only son. We're only saved because God chose us before time began and put his mark upon us so that we responded to the call. And we responded because, as we saw a few weeks back, we were born again. We did what we could not do. The price that we could not pay was paid by Christ. And Paul did not do this, and Apollos did not do this, and Cephas did not do this, and no other man or woman can do this. So Christ isn't divided, and Paul was saying to here, who are you saved by? Where is your salvation? Your salvation is not in a man. Your, your pastor may be amazing. Your preacher back home may be incredible. The person that you watch on the internet may be absolutely amazing. But they can't save you. They cannot save you. And the tragedy is nowadays, and the tragedy back then, is many believers extol their pastors into the place that's reserved for Christ alone. Christ is the head of the church, not the pastor. Christ is the saviour of his people, not the prophet, the preacher, the man of God, the, the, the prophet S, whatever you want to bring to your imagination. The only person that can save is Christ. You see, as people extol their pastors, as they start almost to worship them, sadly so often when this happens, unlike Paul, who didn't buy into this. So many pastors let their natural tendencies and their fallen man take over. 
and it feel, feeds their pride. And then they think they've become something they have no right to be. And you can see this nowadays. You can see this around, you don't have to look far on social media, and you can see a frenzy of so-called men and women of God, and they're chasing followers, and they're chasing likes, and they're chasing numbers, with all manner of insanity and, and rubbish. And they're dividing the church. And the Apostle Paul cuts through and just says, Was Paul crucified for you? And his third question was particularly to the area of baptism, which obviously must have been an issue for some of them. Some of them were saying that they were baptized of the one or the other. And he just says to them, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Who are we to baptize people in the name of? We baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. No one's baptized into an a individual's church, or an individual church, or in their own name. If they are, that baptism is absolutely wrong. The only person, the only one who we are baptized into is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it's because we've been saved by grace through Christ's atonement for us on the cross. And Paul was reminding these people that he personally is glad that he didn't baptize any. He's glad because he didn't want people to follow him. He wanted people to follow Christ. And, and, and we live in a day and age of celebrity, don't we? We, we live in a day and age of, of people, people's job is to do TikTok. I mean, I'm getting old, I know I am, but I'm finding this hard to imagine how a, a worthwhile industry can be doing a YouTuber. And, and you know what the tragedy of this is? The, the tragedy is not that those people are doing that. The, the biggest tragedy is some people have decided, I can monetize Christ and Christ crucified. I can make a living out of TikToking as a religion. I can make money out of being a prophet online. Now, I, I know that you use social media and you have fun with it, and I'm not speaking against that. But I get really concerned from this passage of Scripture about these people who pop up trying to be celebrities, and, and, and they're touting Christianity and, and religion. And something like that to, to, to boost their celebrity following. It is unrighteous to follow a celebrity pastor or make a celebrity our idol. Or even make your own pastor an idol. It's a danger. You see, the answer to all those questions that he, that he brings up, the answer is a resounding no. Is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. But the big answer to this question, the real answer to this question is not that no. The real answer to the quarreling, the real answer to the vision, division is the cross of Christ. 
You see, the Apostle Paul brings them all round and he says to them, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words eloquent of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, friends, there will be a lot less divisions and problems in this church if pastors remembered that their job was to preach the gospel. To preach it not with words of eloquent wisdom. And eloquent wisdom was the big thing then, yeah? Nowadays we've got different sort of eloquent of wisdom. The big thing you need to draw your crowd is a stage that's set like a theatre or a club. And you need a booming bass that enables people to dance and sweat and get themselves into an emotional high. And then the sanctified saxophonist comes on and the mood changes and the lighting changes. And this man at the right time comes out of the smoke and speaks forth and says nothing of any value. We need to hear Christ and Christ crucified. And the reason the church is in a mess around the world is because it's moved away from its core message. The only message. The only message that the Apostle Paul had was to preach Christ crucified. I'm thankful that God has given gifts to some folk and they preach amazing sermons. But people aren't saved by amazing sermons. They're saved by the foolishness of the cross. I thank God that there are preachers who can pull together a sermon with great illustrations and eloquence. But that doesn't save. You see, pure preaching is the gospel, the good news that the Lord Jesus Christ came down to this world to save his people from their sins. We are wretched. We have sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And someone strumming quietly on a guitar is not going to save you. And someone making you dance for hours into a frenzy is not going to save you. And someone fleecing you for all your money is not, not going to save you neither. The true power is in the cross. And the Apostle Paul didn't want anything to get in the way of that. Verse 23 says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. I think part of this statement of the cross and being crucified is lost on us nowadays. You see, if, if I looked around now here with us, quite a few of you would have a cross, a pendant, maybe a, a necklace or on a ring or, or whatever. And lots of churches, and even here we have a, a cross here at the front, don't we? And some churches have big crosses on their, on their buildings. And I think modern Christianity has sanitized the cross. The cross in the first century was a horrific thing. Polite society wouldn't have mentioned the word crucifixion. It was too dirty, too ugly, too painful to talk about publicly. People wouldn't have talked about it because it was reserved for the worst of the worst. 
We think of the paedophile being the worst of the worst. We think of the rapist being the worst of the worst. We think of those big sins being the worst of the worst. And this is a death reserved for that type of criminal. And it was reserved for that type of criminal because it was the worst of deaths. It was an horrendous death. It was a shameful death. You were lifted on high. You were naked before the people around who would laugh at you. You were beaten. You were scourged. You were helpless. You were hopeless. You were fighting for every breath. Every breath you took gave you searing pain. You see, the Jews would have known the cross from Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 21, it reads like this in verse 22. It says, if any man has committed a crime punishable to death, he is to be put to death and you to hang him on a tree like on a cross. His body shall not remain the night on the tree, but you shall bury him that same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. The cross was like a curse of God upon someone. Physical, visual reminder of God's wrath being poured out on sin and something that is wrong. And then the Greeks would have not seen any value in someone dying on a cross. That was reserved for criminals and someone who's meant to be the Messiah, someone who's meant to be a conqueror, someone who's meant to be the King of Kings, someone who was this. This was the worst way of dying. This is not a smart idea. Christ on the cross for those first century people was ridiculous. But it's absolutely everything. Because in that moment of weakness, in that moment of worldly folly, the Lord Jesus Christ died for the sins of his people. And that means as we look around this room together, those of us that know Jesus as our Savior, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ's blood was shed for us. And that's where the unity comes from. And you see, this, this passage goes on and it gives us three causes for disunity. And I'm just going to give you those heads and I think next week we'll come back to them in, in more detail. But I think it's just worth us quickly going over these uh, headings. You see, there's three causes or three things in this passage that cause disunity and we need to be aware of them. You see, we can emphasize the world's wisdom. Greeks seek wisdom but they didn't look on the cross and see that as a way of salvation they looked at it on the cross and they saw it as folly and the people that saw it as folly were those who were and are perishing you see if we start putting someone else in the place of Christ if we start moving the cross out and try to put something in its place that seems more palatable, something that seems better, something that seems more academically scholarly. I mean, it's happening now, doesn't it? Because around the world, people are explaining away miracles and creation by science, and people are undermining the authority of the Bible, and all these emphasis of worldly wisdom caused disunity. We need to go back to the cross and then emphasizing the wrong thing the Jews demanded a sign they were wanting a sign 
In Jesus' time, when Jesus was there, Jesus complained about exactly the same thing. He said, you, just, you Jews just want the same thing. You want a sign. You want to see something spectacular. And that's exactly the same now, isn't it? The world doesn't want to look to Christ and Christ crucified. It wants a sign. And so what the church is trying to do is give them a sign, to give them something. And so people need their worship to be a time when something connects emotionally and it's a time when they sweat and worship is good and right and proper. I'm not against worship, but I'm against it when it is emphasizing the wrong thing, when it's trying to feed self rather than raise the deity in the name of Christ. People are chasing miracles. One of the girls on exile from... Uh, one of the stands, Kazakhstan I think it is, said that over the last little while, because she's got good English, she was asked to do some translating for a deliverance ministry. And she said it was very strange, because as this deliverance ministry went on over a few months, the same people always came back for deliverance. And she just marked the question, if they're truly delivered, why did they come back? And why does this deliverance ministry need to happen? Well, we need to be delivered from our sins. And our sins are delivered because Christ came down and died on the cross to do it. And people are chasing miracles. And people are chasing signs and wonders. And people are chasing these things. And other people are tricking them into believing things that are not there. Now, does God work supernaturally? Yes, he does. Can God do miracles? Yes, he does. But we don't peddle in them. Because the Jews demand a sign and God told us to preach Christ and Christ crucified. I was told just this week that some people don't come to LPC because it's boring. Those people want signs and wonders and excitement. And there could be a temptation for us as church leaders to pander to that. And if that happens, I want you to come to me and say, Pastor, you are to preach Christ and Christ crucified and nothing else. Because that's what you need. That's what I need. And that's what this dying world needs. And thirdly, being proud in the wrong things. These people were boasting in their own celebrity pastors, boasting in their signs and wonders. And it seemed like they were putting the emphasis in the wrong thing. They wanted great and powerful speakers, great and charismatic characters, people of influence. Well, that's not God's way. This is so reassuring and so much of a blessing to us. You see, that is a way that leads to disunity because it takes the focus from God. Being proud in the wrong things takes us away from God. You see, the passage tells us in 28, God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to things that are, bring to nothing things that are. Friends, we need to be humbled. We need to be humbled so that in verse 9, 29, so no human being might boast in the presence of God. Can you imagine boasting in the presence of God? We shouldn't because he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and our sanctification and redemption. Our everything is from the Lord, not from a pastor, not from a person. No person can, can give us that wisdom, that righteousness, that sanctification, or that redemption. 
No one can do that. It's in Christ alone. And when we boast in the wrong things, that's when it gets messy. That's when there is disunity. And so it's written that the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Quarreling in disunity is overcome by the cross of Christ. And so to bring you back to the beginning, your favourite preacher, your favourite pastor, your spiritual internet TikTok guru, your preacher here, LPC. Do they preach the gospel? Do they preach Christ and Christ crucified? Because if they don't, ditch them. If we stop preaching Christ and Christ crucified in here, you either tell us or you get out. You don't need anything else. Are you attracted to by their, by their words of wisdom? Are you attracted by their, their signs and wonder, their style? Are you attracted by their bank balances and their cars and their Learjets? You see, the only thing that should matter to us is Christ and Christ crucified. And that is the glue that should unite us as a church. And that's why I say quarreling and disunity is overcome by the cross of Christ.